Hello and welcome to the 18th episode of Interabing Podcast, produced by Interabing Books in Dallas, Texas. On this week's episode, we have an interview with author Rebecca Mackay about her new novel, The Great Believers. In the year 1985, that was the year that the test came out for HIV. And my assumption going in was that people would have thought this was a great thing to have a test. And I was very wrong about that. You'll also hear about the exciting events we'll have in the store in the coming weeks. Remember, you can support the store 24-7 by shopping on our website, interrobangbooks.com. There you'll also find new releases, articles, and book recommendations. Chicago native Rebecca Mackay is the author of two previous novels, The Hundred Year House and The Borrower, and the short story collection Music for Wartime. She's the recipient of a Pushcart Prize in 2017, and her fiction has appeared in the Best American Short Stories. Her new novel, The Great Believers, was released last month by Viking Books. Here's my conversation with Rebecca Mackay, recorded last month on Skype. Rebecca Mackay, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Interrobing Podcast. Thank you. So to start us off, I'm wondering if you can give us the premise of your book, The Great Believers. The Great Believers is mostly set in 1980s Chicago at the crest of the AIDS epidemic there. We are following one character, this guy named Yale Tishman, from um, 1985, where we meet him at, at a memorial service for his first close friend who's died of AIDS. And we follow him for the next seven years as his life falls apart as the virus circles closer and closer, but also takes on much greater direction and meaning. Meanwhile, every other chapter is set in 2015 Paris, where there's a woman named Fiona. It was her brother whose uh, memorial service started the book, and she's in Paris trying to track down her estranged daughter. But because of some characters who resurface there and some other circumstances, she's forced to finally look back on that time 30 years ago and to come to terms with all the trauma she's suppressed. So can you tell us a little bit more about Yale, what he's like as a person, what he does, and how the AIDS crisis, as it ramps up in the 80s and 90s, how it kind of closes in on Yale's life? He's sort of a a very cautious, almost prudish, button-up guy. Um, He's a total sweetheart. You know, everyone loves him. And he's the development director for a small, newish art gallery at Northwestern University. And things are going very well in his career. He's working with this elderly woman who's trying to donate a, a pretty substantial art collection. It's kind of the, the gift of his career, you know, to get these pieces. And when we start, he's, you know, got a long-term boyfriend. He's doing really well. And then friends, you know, start getting sort of picked off one by one. What happens, I'm leaving out some spoilers here, so this, this isn't that much of a spoiler, but by the end of the book, by the, you know, early 90s, he's become really pretty politicized. The person who was always, you know, always held back, was always so cautious. By the end of the story, is out there in the streets fighting with ACT UP at a demonstration, risking police brutality and really screaming for his life and for the life of his friends. So, Rebecca, you get at this question by 
showing us how the AIDS crisis revolutionized the gay community and united the gay community in many ways. Can you give us some context about the AIDS crisis in the 80s and 90s, specifically in Chicago, and how the gay community of Chicago responded to it? Yeah, I, I was not there directly in the 80s with, you know, at the height of things and have come into friendships since then with people who um, were there, people who are HIV positive. And it was really important for me to conduct a lot of interviews with people who had intimate knowledge of this time, had been there, in order to get right not just the, you know, granular details of what had happened or, you know, what bar was where at what time or, um, you know, things like, you know, what medication someone would be on, um, but also to get the emotional and psychological details right, to really have that, the right way of um, thinking about things. Because I think, you know, my own empathy, my own imagination could only get me so far. So I'll give you an example of that, which is that in the year 1985, which is the year my book starts, that was the year that the um, test came out for what we now uh, call HIV, but what was called HTLV3 at the time. And my assumption um, going in was that people would have thought this was a great thing to have a test, and you could take it or not, but you had a test. And I was very wrong about that. Certainly, there were some people who, you know, were grading it with open arms, but there was a tremendous amount of mistrust. Um, first of all, just the question of whether it was accurate. Then the question of, do you even want to know? Because there's no medication. So why do you want to know? What, how is it going to change your behavior for better or for worse? Third, and most importantly for many people, the question of, uh, can you trust the anonymity of this test? Uh, would a positive test result basically be, signing yourself up for a quarantine down the road when those results were subpoenaed by the U.S. government in some way. So there's, you know, huge debate around that. And um, that's something that I couldn't just empathize my way into. Um, that's something that I really needed, that footwork, those interviews, and, you know, needed to be going back and reading you know, uh, op-eds from the time, letters to the editor of Gay Weekly's, um, everything that I could get my hands on um, to put myself in that mindset. So something you do really well in The Great Believers is get at the nuances of the lack of information that was available uh, in specifically in the 80s about AIDS and HIV and how the understanding of the community went from it being just like this strange uh, extremely dangerous uh, sexually transmitted disease to this epidemic that was affecting not just the gay community, but also the community at large. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about stigmatization and how stigmatization in the gay community and outside of the community uh, affects some of the characters in this book? I have, you know, certainly have a big population in this novel, you know, a lot of different characters, which meant I was able to get, a, a, you know, a, a broad variety of experience in there. Some of my characters are um, estranged from their nuclear families. Some are on chilly terms with them. Some of them have loving families that are going to support them. But there's, you know, what they all share is a city. I'm writing about characters who are out, who are, you know, involved in the gay community. So they have the support of each other. But there's also several incidents of, you know, violence in this book. Um, people, you know, throwing things at people, people 
following them down the street, harassing them for being gay, which is, you know, was and is very much a relevant part of life. That was important to me. And, and more broadly, the political climate in America and, and just our puritanical history um, is affecting everyone in this book. And, and as it affected everyone, you know, at the height of this crisis and, and still to this day, um, one of the things that it was kind of heartbroken to learn as I researched was how much better everything went in Paris and London which were, you know, in the 80s, the two other cities outside of the U.S. that were the most affected. Um, in those cities, they got uh, people, you know, people trusted the test much sooner. There wasn't this fear of the government. There wasn't as much stigma around it. People were more open about their status. They were more open about education. And so they were able to contain this disease so much more quickly and so much more efficiently. And it was, you know, the main, you know, logo for ACT UP um, in the late 80s, early 90s was silence equals death. This is what they meant, that, that stigma and that refusal to talk about it because you have, you know, ingrained fears or self-loathing that you've, you know, picked up on from Jesse Helms or whatever televangelist or your family, those are killing people, literally killing people. And, you know, I, I hadn't realized how true that was until I saw the ways this was handled outside of America and went, oh my God, that's what we could have been doing. You know, it, it could have been like that instead. Another way that you compare the reactions between gay communities and the community at large here in the United States compared to places like London and Paris is by separating the stories of uh, Yale and Fiona in this story, not just by geographical uh, separation, but also by a few decades. So can you tell us as much as you would like about Fiona and her journey in 2015 Paris? She wasn't originally really a big part of the book. I was really started by writing entirely set in the 80s, thinking that maybe by the end I would skip forward in time. But I, I realized I needed to broaden in many ways, one of which um, one of which was my point of view characters. I wanted another point of view character. And, and another even more important way was I, I wanted that scope of time. Um, I wanted to be writing about the modern day, looking back, the ripples in the pond that are, you know, still spreading out from that initial splash. Yes, so Fiona's story is that her daughter, her college-age daughter, a few years back had um, joined a cult in Colorado and cut off communication, but has fled the cult and has been spotted by a friend in Paris. And so Fiona has traveled to Paris you know, not knowing where in the city her daughter could possibly be, but just desperately hoping to find her. Um, and she has had a lot of failures as a mother, a lot of them connected to um, the traumas she has not fully processed of having lost her brother and then lost friend after friend after friend as she cared for them at a very young age you know, the way she's afraid to fully love anyone. You know, those are things that she's dealing with as she gets there. She, because of what's happening in her life and also because of um, a couple of friends from the 80s who wind up in Paris with her, um, she's really thinking back on that time and, and really coming to terms with some of what happened for the first time. To broaden the conversation just a little bit, you just mentioned that Fiona did not start as a major voice in this book, a major part of this book, but she ended up being, you know, in the end product, she ended up being 
uh, one half of this binary narrative that you have that, that works really well. So I'm wondering how you started this book and how and what you, you wish to achieve with the voice of Yale and how, how you started with Yale as a character and, and wanted to develop him as he traversed the, this really apocalyptic landscape in the 1980s Chicago during the AIDS crisis. You know, I, it's funny because I think there are plenty of things as a writer that I do with great intention, and there are some things that I do instinctively. Character development is, is one of those more instinctive things for me. I don't sit down first. I know, I know plenty of writers who really think deeply about character before they begin to write. I tend to want to meet my characters in scene on the page and just kind of see what they're going to do. And then, um, you know, midway, spend a lot of time thinking about their character and um, figuratively taking them to the shrink and figuring out what makes them tick. But I need to meet them first. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't particularly know much about Yale when I started other than the fact that he was going to be an art guy. You know, he was, he was specifically his development director for a small art gallery. So a money guy who works with art. So that's going to be a certain type. Maybe he's maybe a little more buttoned up. He's not an artist, right? Um, I also knew that, you know, he needed to be a little bit naive, a little bit too trusting. While he has many friends who are quite promiscuous, quite, I, I hate the word promiscuous. It sounds judgmental, but who, you know, um, happily sleep with many partners. Yale is largely monogamous, and um, I think that was important for me to show that this wasn't just a crisis that was happening um, um, to people who were, um, you know, staying out all night. That's a that's a um, you know stereotype that's not very helpful. Um, I wanted to show that this was a crisis that was reaching every corner of the gay community as well as, of course, beyond the gay community. So that, those were maybe the things that I started with. Um, and he became clearer and clearer to me as I wrote. I'm fascinated with this process of meeting the character mid-story. As the story progresses, you yourself are learning about this character and how he or she might react in different circumstances, and especially how it relates to the restraint that you have to show as the writer in letting the character have glimpses into his or her own situation. So how do you restrain what a character knows and how do you unveil the plot of a story before a character's eyes uh, in, in the great believers? How does that work for Yale? You know, it's, it's tricky, especially because with that leap in time, we end up knowing way more than he knows because we've now seen 30 years into the future. I would rather, though, I have to say, like, that's my favorite kind of dramatic irony. That's my favorite way in which to let readers know more than the character versus just, you know, the character being kind of dense and then we know more because we're smarter or something like that. You know, I, I love working with those leaps in time for that reason. That's kind of a goosebumpy thing for me as a writer. There are a couple of different times when he is very surprised by the behavior of others in ways that my hope is the reader will be surprised as well, but that the reader could look back and go, oh, now I see that's why this person was acting this way. I get it now. The clues were there, but I was kind of right there with Yale and his naivety maybe around this other character. You know, the narrative in the, in the 80s needed to know only what Yale knew, whereas when we go into 2015, 
we're going to learn many things about him that he doesn't yet know about himself. In many ways, The Great Believers resembles a war story, right? It has a large group of people who share some similarities, who share some semblance of a cause and a unity, but who also at times feel great resentment toward one another and who feel a lot of self-blame at, at various times, all under the the shadow of the specter of death, which just hangs over everything and uh, and keeps popping up over and over again as people are lost. So in what ways do you see The Great Believers as a war story or a story of crisis? And how does this story address the, the, the topic of people in human nature responding in crisis? Well, I think you, you put your finger on it. I, I, I see this in many ways as a war book. Let me preface this by saying, I am not comparing myself to Ernest Hemingway, but um, I'm looking, you know, you look at something like A Farewell to Arms and the way that that book is about war, but it's really about loss and defiant love and human endurance and all those things. That's very much what I'm trying to do. And and the parallels between the AIDS crisis and a war are made pretty explicit in the book. For one thing, the parallels to World War One, but also Yale is talking to Fiona in the 80s, and he says, you've been through a war and no one's going to give you a purple heart for it. You know, in what other circumstance? You know, would you watch dozens of your closest friends die in their 20s? So, you know, that's if uh, that would just make me so happy if if this book is ever going to be taught. I would love for it to be taught in a class on novels of war. Uh, You know, I would love for it to be read in that context because that's what it is. You know, and they get out there in, in a late chapter. They are out there in the street at this ACT UP protest in 1990, and they are getting literally trampled by the police. They are sacrificing their bodies for this cause. Well, Rebecca Mackay, we appreciate the time that you spent with us today on Interrobing Podcast. Thank you so much for your conversation. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You can find copies of The Great Believers here in the store or online at interrobingbooks.com. Next, here are some of the great events happening in the store in the coming weeks. This coming Tuesday, July 24th, the incredible Tessa Mushfag will visit the store with her highly anticipated new novel, My Year of Rest and Relaxation. The event starts at 7 o'clock. The following night, Wednesday, July 25th at 7 o'clock, writer Kent Wascom will discuss his new novel of the Gulf Coast, The New Inheritors. Brian Abrams, author of Obama and Oral History, will visit Interrobang on Thursday, July 26th at 7 p.m. to discuss his book covering the behind the scenes of the Obama administration. Finally, we're excited to have author Edgar Contero in the store on Wednesday, August 1st at 7 p.m. to tell us about his tongue-in-cheek noir novel, This Body's Not Big Enough for Both of Us. You can find out about these and all of our other events on our website, interrobangbooks.com. And don't forget to vote for your favorite novel in The Great American Read, presented by PBS and KERA. Find more information by visiting pbs.org slash greatamericanread.
That's it for episode 18 of Interabank Podcast. There's always something new at Interabank. So follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to keep up with the store. The podcast is produced by Interabank Books in Dallas, Texas. Our music was composed by Carlos Guajardo. I'm Jack Freeman. We hope to see you in the store soon. Have a great week and read fearlessly. Fearlessly.